Hello, my name is Ryan Beasy, the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia. What follows is part of our congregation's official celebration of the 50th anniversary of the Presbyterian Church in America, as well as a special episode of the Westminster Standard Podcast, which I am privileged to host. In this program, we will have the opportunity to hear from a number of PCA founding fathers, and they will tell us of God's faithfulness to His church and the heroic witness of men from that first generation of the PCA. Now, due to some technical difficulties, a couple of our guests had to leave early on the episode, but nonetheless, I hope you will enjoy this special collaboration between Jude 3 and the PCA, the Westminster Standard Podcast, and the First Presbyterian Church of Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia. And at the conclusion of this episode, you will find the premiere of a new hymn from Pastor Zachary Groff, in which he offers praise and thanks to God on the occasion of this 50th anniversary of the Presbyterian Church in America. Thank you for watching. This is the Westminster Standard Podcast. I'm Ryan Beasy. Thanks for joining the conversation. Today is December 4th, 50 years ago on this date in Birmingham, Alabama. The first General Assembly of the PCA was convened and called to order by Mr. Jack Williamson. There were 338 commissioners present for that inaugural assembly, and among those 338 elders, three of them are here with me today, teaching elder Joseph Piper, teaching elder Wayne Herring, and teaching elder O. Palmer Robertson, who, in his sermon to that first assembly of the Continuing Presbyterian Church, called the new church to hold fast to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. I'm also joined by ruling elder Bebo Elkin, who is not quite a PCA founding father, but nonetheless one of the key figures in the founding of the PCA's college ministry, Reformed University Fellowship. I'm also joined by Pastor George Sayor, who returns to the show. George is uh, the pastor at one of the old RPCES congregations who joined with the PCA in 1984, as well as Dr. Steve Tipton, who is the pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Panama City, Florida. Thank you all. Welcome. And so this is a great day for celebrating God's faithfulness uh, to this small branch of his great kingdom uh, as we look back on the five decades of God's faithfulness to us here in the PCA. Uh, well, gentlemen, welcome. Thank you so much for giving uh, your time to, to recollect with, with us. Thank you for having us. <laughs> You're welcome. Well, the, the three uh, of you teaching elders were all present at that first assembly. Uh, many of our viewers uh, will obviously have read some of the history of the PCA, but what are some of the personal things that encouraged you or that you experienced that led you to the conclusion that, that it was needful to join the new denomination? Was there just one moment uh, that convinced you that it was time? Well, I had a very interesting experience. I was a delegate uh, in the PCUS to their 1969 assembly, which was just four years before the foundation of the PCA. And they took some very dramatic 
actions at that assembly. On the one hand, they decided to allow Union Presbyteries with the Northern Presbyterian Church, which meant that eventually the Westminster Standards would no longer be the governing confession of our denomination. They also went in the direction of approving, moving toward union with the PCUSA and uh, the Northern Presbyterian Church. And they were under the confession of 1967, which again would have robbed us of our basic foundation to the Westminster Confessions. They also committed themselves to write a new confession. They weren't satisfied with the old Westminster standards, and so they were going to write a new confession. And they also determined to continue with COCU, which was the consulta consultation on church union, which intended to bring together the Methodist Church, the Episcopal Church, the Northern and Southern Presbyterian churches into one vast new denomination that would have just the basic creed, Jesus is Lord, which sounds wonderful in itself, but doesn't really say very much in terms of what our full testimony before the world should be. Mm. So all of those things decided in that one General Assembly of 1969 pointed to something that, that had to be changed and in just four years, the, the time came for the formation of the PCA, a new church, and it was a great pleasure of mine to be a part of the starting of that new denomination. Mm. When you mentioned that uh, 1967 assembly in your uh, address at the on at, at our 50th, uh, what were some of the changes that uh, shocked you? The this is 1969, you're, you're 1967? Well, the 1967 um, confession, I think uh, Wayne Herring mentioned that in his address to the assembly uh, in June, and you, you referenced it coming back up in 69. Yes, well, it, it, the, the new confession was, uh, was simply not going to affirm the, the basic standards that we had held in terms of the deity of Christ and the bodily resurrection and all of those essentials of the faith. Yeah. So, Ryan, my experience was a bit different. Uh, I was ordained in the Southern Church in 71, so that would be two years after Dr. Robertson had attended that uh, assembly. And I knew uh, how bad the church was, although being in central Mississippi Presbytery, which basically Dr. Miller and, and Dr. Smith had been bringing in conservatives over over the years under the presbytery it was a bit more of uh isolation although we'd been to i think wayne and charlie and i had been to the two synods the one where we overturned everything about getting women officers and then they took they put two more synods together in nashville and then they voted women into everything but i still was uncertain whether it was systematic and it was actually Dr. Smith's book, How the Goals Become Dim, 
that the Lord used to give me a, a freedom of conscience to leave uh, when the church was formed. I had a lot of doubts about the integrity and direction of the PCA, but that is what the Lord used to help me uh, to leave when I did. And I'm glad I left when I did. We have friends that stayed in, and I think that uh, the, at least the ones I I know or have known, it, it hurt them. Well, you might agree with that because we have the same friends, some of the same friends stayed in. What was it like at that first assembly? Uh, what what kind of speeches stood out? Um, obviously, it was both a time of celebration and probably grief for the old church. That's very true. It, you know, even someone like Sam Patterson had determined that he was going to stay in the the old denomination out of out of convictions and and it is very painful to to even in a small way but a, a way like this to yeah. the denomination was a was a sad thing mm. but it was of course very joyful also to hear those men singing together and the moment coming to come forward and put your name on the the document that you would be a part of this new denomination was a very wonderful moment. Uh, Wayne, you were ministering in South Carolina. Yes, I was called up to be the Rock Hill, First Presbyterian Rock Hill. That was the biggest church in Bethel Presbyterian, which was a very Presbyterian. And uh, I would will add, I didn't say this at the General Seminary, I have something in common with James Henley Thornwell, He's ordained by the same Presbyterian. <laughs> and uh, Wow, they were they were really uh, they were not very friendly. With I went to lunch with the chairman of the examining committee about a week before the Presbyterian meeting. He did not believe in the virgin birth, and I remember lunch thinking, "Why? Why are you in? Why are you in the ministry? I mean, without the virgin birth, you don't have any Christianity. You don't have any atonement." Mm. But anyway, we did have the exam, and, and I explained it all at the general. It was pretty rough. But uh, I did get it was about 40 to 10 uh, because a couple of other men, one thing that probably helped me was because our church members were the largest contributor to the Presbytery as far as financially, uh, and they knew, <laughs> they didn't, but they did make it difficult, and, and it was about 40 to 10, and, um, but uh, it was very obvious to me that most of that Presbytery an Orthodox Christianity, even though um, they were still in the PC U.S. Uh, I look forward to the time when the assembly we would free, uh, and it came happy when. Were there um, were there any particular items of debate at that first general assembly that stood out or that you recall? Uh, yeah, I think the three things that we went in concerned with, uh, well, also the funniest speech, one of the issues was role of women in the church, because women in the church had really hurt the Southern church. When I went to Chula, the curriculum material was horrendous that they were using, but uh, uh, Jim Moore got up and spoke against having a such a highly organized uh, uh, women in the church, and again, his speech by saying, I've been married to three women. <laughs> And actually, he worked through his third wife, but they all died. But um, 
that the two big issues were the nature of missions and the charismatic movement. And of course, there was a handful of us that had been taught by Dr. Smith, and we were both Thornwellian in our approach to missions and uh, confessional in our approach to the charismatic movement. Uh, both of those debates were basically won by the broader church and really set the tone for a number of years then of, um, of tensions in the, in the denomination. I can remember going to a meeting a number of years later. I know Dr. Smith and I were there, uh, where uh, one of the early founding fathers made very impassioned speeches for uh, charismatic type activities. Dr. Robertson, they put you on a study committee on charismatic gifts, didn't they? Yes, they did. It, it was a committee. I think part of the concern of the of of that committee was that we didn't want to see happen what had happened in the OPC when it first started. They were together very briefly, and then the RPs separated from the OPs almost immediately. And there were some fragile moments when the the beginning at the beginning of the PCA, there, there could have been a second split over something like the charismatic movement. That report, as I remember it, was quite strong in saying no gifts related to continuing revelation were continuing. And it was our expectation that in the process of the of the development of reformed theology within the denomination that that the, the those voices that were continuing to say things about these gifts that were not revelational would die away and i think actually that that is what happened has happened over the time there may be a, a small sprinkling of some people with a continuation of of inclination toward openness toward the gifts, but essentially the position has been stated from the very beginning that anything related to revelation, gifts related to revelation had ceased, and that was at that time the most important thing to establish. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, that was good. Another interesting report, Ryan, that came out of the early years was the Committee on uh, Abortion. And I had the privilege of being on there with Will Thompson. I believe the PCA basically plowed very new ground uh, out, out of that report because in dealing with uh, the extraordinary cases of uh, the life of a mother, for example, um, recognizing um, the, a consistent principle, you don't kill a baby, we actually developed the concept that you carry the baby as long as the mother can, and then you do a C-section and take the baby with the intention of saving both lives, recognizing you might not be able to save the life of the baby. But that was, I think, a, and, and Will Thompson had a lot to do with um, uh, helping us uh, develop that concept. It's the first time I remember it, actually. In fact, the whole abortion, you know, even up into the, uh, in, well in the 20th century, there were a lot of, of reformed men creationists that would say they didn't exactly know when life began. I think there was an ignorance 
uh, in the conservative church early on with respect to abortion. And I believe that our study committee uh, had a good contribution on that. That that beloved you know, physician, Will Thompson, just did a super job in teaching us, you know, what one ruling elder can do for for the body of Christ is is very significant and that was a great blessing. Yes. Joy, I appreciate you remembering that. Well Dr. Piper, you led uh, the first integrated summer camp in the state of Mississippi. Uh, now one of the allegations against the PCA was that she was founded to promote segregation, which is you know, just absurd. But can you speak uh, to to that uh, allegation as as one of our founding fathers? Well, uh, yeah. Well, the camp was not well <laughs> received, and that was we were still in Central Mississippi even at the time. That was in the PCUS. Yeah. But we, so, uh, but what happened? It's interesting as well that uh, we were in the ordained at the very time that the uh, PCUS integrated its presbyteries. And there was a, a dear sweet lady that was a black lady coming to Central Mississippi Presbytery uh, sent by her church as an elder. And she was absolutely isolated for two reasons and one was because she was a female elder the other was because this was kind of the first step of that integration and so some of us younger men that had been taught at reform seminary um, befriended her out of just recognizing what uh, she had to be going under and she didn't want to be there as a, a woman elder you know they just but uh, so yeah early on we had these interactions and so they wanted, I mean, some wanted to sell the camp because of the Presbyterian now being integrated, but we um, we argued for keeping it open, and it was just six miles from where I pastored, and I was overseeing it anyway, so I said I'd be glad to run the camp. But actually, it went quite well, um, and I, there was no really bad uh pushback on that so but they then sold the camp i don't think we got the camp when we left um but maybe we did because i still remember running taking care of it anyway it got sold to the y mca uh, sometime after after that but this was merely a matter of, of gospel integrity yeah. you'd ask the question of, you know about the concerns it was merely a matter that uh you know, we were one church, and um, and the Lord, I think, blessed that. Actually, there were a group of, of African-American ladies that cooked at the camp for me. They all lived in Shula, where I pastored. They later went to our session, having heard the teaching. So we had one of the earliest RUF camps out at Camp Westminster. So I was still running it at that time, obviously. So somehow the PCA must have, have gotten the uh, gotten it. And uh, these ladies cooked out there for me at various camps. And they came to the session in Chula then and asked if we would start a um, Lord's Day service for them. Because the pastor or the preacher, he wasn't a pastor. He only came twice a month. And so we actually started that the last year and a half. So I was in Mississippi as well. Bebo, I was just saying that... Uh, 
was that one of the very first RUF camps that we had at, at uh, Camp uh, Camp Calvin, right? No, Camp Garraway. You say well, Garraway? I mean, we had, one camp, had one at Camp Calvin, an RUF camp. We did, and we froze. We yeah. froze. Yeah. Yes, we did. So I was talking about there. Yeah, that was one of the first one of the first ones. I remember teaching on the doctrine of adoption. Yeah. Wayne, Wayne Bebo, one of you may may have been on this trip. I, I'm not sure, but in the very early days of Reform Seminary, there was a really fine African American Presbyterian pastor in Jackson, Mississippi. And I invited him to join with several of us students to drive around Jackson to introduce us to the that area of Jackson so we could know how to relate to it better and, and share the, the gospel with that, that portion of the community of Jackson. Either one of you remember being in, in the car with, with me at that time? Well, I, there were probably three three students in the back seat, and myself, and this American Presbyterian pastor in the front, and we explored the the whole area of Jackson with the perspective of seeing how we eventually could participate in in the the ministry. I I don't I didn't I was not aware of anyone promoting segregation within the PCA. Maybe I, I didn't, I'm sure I didn't meet everybody there, but that that was not an issue to the PCA. Well, no, in fact, Dr. Smith and uh, the man from Florida that gave the money for uh, the camp were told that if they would do an integrated, a segregated facility, he gave him a million dollars, and it was just flatly turned down. And RTS sent me. I went up. I think it was our senior year to the uh, uh, African American College, North Mississippi, recruit students. Um, and I also in Chula was trying to recruit a young man. Ended up going to Pittsburgh Senior because they gave him a fortune to ruin it. But uh, yeah, RTS in those early days was also very committed to uh, trying to expand the Reformed faith. Uh, the African-American community. Yeah. It was really interesting. Uh, of the first four graduates of Reformed Theological Seminary, three went as missionaries, and the fourth, Doug Miller, went as a pastor to a, an integrated church in, I, I think it was Montgomery, Alabama. So from the very beginning, there was ministry mm. across, across lines. Right. That was not a part of the formation of the PCA. It, the, the concerns were not social, but uh, theological. Speaking of, of social concerns, <laughs> again, going back to that 1969 uh, assembly, that was right in the middle of the Cold War. Yeah. And, but, you know, from 1947 to 1991, that was a Cold War. Uh, here in 1967. In 1957, Gorbachev made his famous statement to Western delegates, we will bury you. 
And later he took his shoe on and off, it was already off, and started beating on the, the table, indicating that that this was their their attitude toward toward the West, right in the middle of that time. And in this nineteen sixty-nine assembly, the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in the United States adopted a message to send to the government of the United States of America saying, please consider carefully the dangers that when you have proposed more anti-ballistic missile systems, in other words, how terrible it would be for you to develop anti-ballistic missile systems to guard America. And so the the Presbyterian Church was telling the government, don't do that. Don't do anti-ballistic missile systems. And uh, so you can see why the, the PCA ended up being formed. And sadly, so sadly, at the very time when the, a hundred years later, when the, when the, from the, from that time that, that the at that particular time, the PC the old PCUS had drifted that far from its original stand in in eighteen in the eighteen hundreds when it was originally formed when they very clearly said our responsibilities are not to give social pronouncements. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, we're very indebted to again Dr. Smith for teaching us this spirituality of the church and ryan you know why we met december 4th 1973 that was the anniversary of the old southern church that's the first meeting of the old southern assembly yes it was it was it was an historic uh mindset uh that prevailed and, and we adopted that Cornwell's letter to the churches yes years later yes. yes so that so, was in wait that was intentional Oh yes, that's great. It was a, it was a Tuesday. Who starts an <laughs> assembly on a Tuesday? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, one of the things that has stood out to me from our conversation so far was the emphasis, either in the 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 men, even during their ministry in the PCUS, and then who came into the PCA, on evangelism and 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 discipleship and and reaching the lost, as opposed to. As you just said, talking about ballistic missiles and, and w how many of them are, are too many. Uh, so what did that look like in uh, the early days of the PCA versus the, the PCUS? Was it night and day contrast? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. We, we had the PEF, the Presbyterian Evangelistic Fellowship, if you can believe it. Full-time evangelist ready to come and hold a weeks evangelistic meetings at Presbyterian churches. We obviously had Jim Kennedy and his you know, evangelism explosion that had built on the principle of, of training lay people how to share their faith. And on the, the side of, of discipleship, we had you know, some, some strong you know, emphasis in, in that area as 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 well with a man named Terry Geiger who worked particularly with men to disciple men thinking that that was really a, a critical aspect of the, of the church that was a healthy church 
Mm. So those were the, the emphases. And in terms of missions, it was church planting. That was the principal mission, that our missionaries were to concentrate their funds and their efforts on the planting of churches where the gospel would be preached to all the nations of the world. Hmm. Well, the, the First General Assembly adopted the, the classic or the historic American Westminster Standards rather than the ones that had been modified by the PCUS. How was that uh, decision made? Uh, was there any question that about which version or of the of the Westminster Standards would be adopted? Joy, you remember any of that? No, I think that was Dr. Smith's you know leadership at that point. But I remember nobody at all. I mean, we all come out of the Southern Church knew how they had ruined the standards. Mm. Um, with the additions, uh, in fact, you know, they added a thing on the Holy Spirit. I, I, I've heard a Dr. Robertson give his lecture on the Westminster Standards and the Holy Spirit. He talks more about the Holy Spirit than about any other person of the Godhead. So, uh, yeah, and so I just, that was good. But, I mean, these men were theologically in that, um, I think, indebted more to, and I don't know how much role you had, Dr. Robertson, on that as well, but uh, I know Dr. Smith, in terms of the of the Book of Order and in terms of the adoption of, uh, of the Confession, but I... I don't remember any debate against it. It was brought up, and, and we just eagerly adopted it. A lot of us have been taught the problems with the other. And Dr. Robertson mentioned they tried to get us to join the RCA. They tried to get us to adopt these other confessions with the Northern Church. So we were the younger men were well aware of that, and I think the older men obviously lived through it as well. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. There, there was no question, of, of course, in the... Oh, PCUS, they, they had tried to get predestination out of the Westminster Confession right. and found that, that was impossible. They, they couldn't just take that chapter out because it was throughout <laughs> the whole of the Confession. So I'm curious, as we talk about the Confession and the standards and the Constitution, what was the guidelines or requirements for a church to split off and join with y'all in 1973 regard, with regards to the confession or subscription or any, any of those things was uh, a require, like what were the requirements to join this new denomination in it, in its founding? If I remember correctly, we were not examined. We were all grandfathered in. If we came in with that commitment, there was not examination. Is that right? Dr. Robertson? Yes, but it was on the that we were affirming the standard right. of the church, which was the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechism. Right. A lot of men did not understand what that meant. And uh, one of the early difficulties, and there was a group of, of men that got labeled, not by themselves, but by others as TRs, thoroughly reformed, the, the phrase actually, and this I think, I mentioned this is a very important part of our history, was not a title that we chose to ourselves. It was actually a title of affection <laughs> because my former pastor, uh, the uh, 
many of these men went to Columbia Seminary and they came out by God's grace, believing the Bible is the word of God and salvation through Christ alone and wanting to be reformed. But they didn't know what that meant, but they had good intentions. And so it was actually a term of affection and respect to say he's not thoroughly reformed or saying he's not being deceitful. He's simply where he is. And one of your questions was trajectory. Well, George, until the RPCS came in, the trajectory was quite good. I, every one of those men I watched uh, become increasingly self-consciously reformed uh, through the uh, those first 10 years, and even afterwards, uh, of the PCA. And so they meant that commitment. They didn't fully understand that commitment. I mean, I was raised, Dr. Robertson was raised probably in one of the most consistent Southern Presbyterian churches in, in the denomination under John Reed Miller. Most of our Southern churches were very evangelical. Um, I was converted to the preaching of one of those founding fathers, and it was an Armenian sermon on, on John 3. But I'm sure 20 years later, he wouldn't preach that sermon. Hmm. So the trajectory was good, I think, until the RPCS came in, and then we, the, a, a major shift in terms of old school, new school Presbyterianism. Hmm. So would you, would you say they were, so everybody was quote unquote conservative, but there was a, a range of how quote unquote confessional they were, but you, you're saying that they were increasing and improving in that as the denomination grew. Right. I don't think at that point they would have been in favor of good faith subscription. Go ahead, Dr. Robertson. Yeah, right. No, but I think they, they all intended to affirm the Westminster standards as far That's as they right. knew it. There, it. there wasn't, it's very interesting, you know, Shortly after the formation of the PCA, I was sharing with uh, uh, someone up at, 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 in the OPC, one of the leaders of the OPC, and saying I wish that we were a little further along as being a, a self-consciously reformed denomination in the new PCA. And he said, don't you realize you're far more reformed as you begin, than the Orthodox Presbyterian Church was when it began. That is right. In the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the, the question was Christianity or liberalism. Do you believe in Christianity, supernatural Christianity, the virgin birth, the miracles, and the inspiration of the Bible, or do you not even believe these basic standards? There was no question about those kinds of things. But in addition to that, all of these men, they had studied under William Charles Robinson, if no one else. And right. he was at Columbia Seminary, and he was very strong on holding to the Westminster standards. All, all of the leaders of the PCA at the beginning. Now, this, this word, TR, <laughs> that was a very sad thing. There was one article that was written yeah. in the Presbyterian Journal saying, Well, the TR. And it was a sad thing because it was an older, respected man giving kind of a caricature of these young men 
who had great enthusiasm for the Westminster Standards and did have a fuller understanding of the Westminster Standards than the older men. They were, we were all united with the Westminster Standards, but these younger men, they had been trained at Reform Seminary and they understood the faith better in terms of all, all those, the doctrinal elements. But we never disrespected the older men, you know. <laughs> I there there was nothing like the Southern Presbyterian pastors that formed the PCA. They were godly men. It it wasn't just doctrine, it was life that they manifested. It was piety and it was the Southern gentlemen. They 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 were strong as could be on the faith, but they had this 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 love of people. They were true shepherds of the flock. And if, if we could just continue in that tradition of being led by pastors as they were in the original PCUS, the PCA, we would be a truly great denomination and have a truly great future ahead of us. Amen. Amen. Dr. Robertson, you said at the First General Assembly, it is to the faith found in the scripture that the continuing church commits itself. By adopting the confession of faith as the basis for its fellowship and ministry, the continuing church takes its stand for the faith once delivered uh, to the saints. Can you um, just explore that for us? What did you mean when you when you said that back in, in 1973? Well, what I see is is the the need to continue with this basics that the scripture ultimately is the basis on which all our discussion is to be held and when you talk about the confession as the basis of fellowship that's essential if we're going to continue to be in fellowship with one another we have to continue to maintain the same doctrinal standards which our denomination was brought in, into being. When, when there is, begins to be a departure from those standards, it, it's like saying, well, you know, your team, you get four downs to see if you can get a first down. We get five downs. And, you know, you can't play a game if people are using different rules. There's obviously not going to be a unified game if you've got people playing with different rules. And in, in our church today, we desperately need to continue to reaffirm the scriptures as that which alone can determine what we believe and how we are to practice as a church and the secondary standards as that which is the definition that founds our unity. Apart from those continuing commitments, we're going to have some trouble and tension and difficulties that we're going to have to continue to work through. We're not giving up at any point, but we're going to have to continue to work through these challenges. Yeah. 
Dr. Robertson, I challenged uh, my presbytery actually at our last meeting. You know, the, what's happening with good faith subscription is um, you take a presbytery like Calvary, which is a pretty conservative presbytery over here in, in northern uh, South Carolina, and these men kept, keep coming in with exceptions about pictures of Christ or exceptions about the Sabbath. Now, I think we've got that one pretty much under control, but say the pictures of Christ. And what I said was, look, you're not ethical. Because all we're doing is presbytery by presbytery amending the confession and not paying the exegetical uh, toil that needs to be done to, to exegete, to debate. And so, you, you know, you, you let the next 20 men in with that exception. You've, you've changed now the presbytery holds that that's what the standards teach. And that's, I think it's a significant, I mean, our, our book of church order tells us how to amend the standards. And what good faith subscription has done is removed that burden of responsibility uh, from uh, the church or men in the church and simply made it so easy now to start slipping this thing and that thing in. And uh, I just think we need to get honest about this. And, you know, if they can bring in exegetical work for any of their differences, well, then fine. Let us vote on it. Joe, I, I, I so agree with you that, you know, we, we've gone through two phases of subscription. We started, I, I, you can say strict subscription. I prefer full subscription. Right, I do too. We hold to, we subscribe to the whole of, of the standards. And that's what we want. We want, as we want people that hold to the full subscription. Then we went to good faith subscription, but that really should mean the same thing. It really should mean full <laughs> subscription, but with a little exception here or there that would be allowed by the governing body. But now we're, we're moving, and I may the, may the Lord you know, preserve us we're moving toward what would be called exception subscription. Right. So that right. You, you don't expect people to come without exceptions. You want to know, well, what are your exceptions? And if you don't have any exceptions, then, then that's something of a problem. And, and then in that framework, you get to the point where you expect people coming into the presbytery to agree to your exceptions. Yeah. And as, as you say, Joey, without any process whatsoever of going through the changing of the standards by, by one majority vote of a presbytery, suddenly an exception has become the rule. And right. can't come into the presbytery unless he agrees not only to the exceptions that are there in front of us, but to the prospect of exceptions that someone else may come in sometime in the, the future. So that, you know, and I, we have I to know a number of our men, and I talked to a man not from Greenville Seminary in Dallas uh, Sunday night. That yeah, they were attacked in the presbytery for saying they don't have any exceptions. 
uh, and it's quite marvelous now that when people you know, I, I go around the bat and what I hear is you know we just people are suddenly we, we've got guys coming without exceptions is that that is a strange thing it's what ought to be and really Dr. Robertson we've always allowed for scruples which is that middle category you were talking about we're not we're not subscribing as you said we're subscribing to the doctor not to every word of the confession so Dr. Knight, for example, scrupled two or three things uh, in the confession, and he could write a book on full subscription, uh, even though he believed in a double resurrection. Uh, so, yeah, it was never ruling out those types of uh, minor exegetical differences. But it has been interesting, is that there seems to be, just as there was a trend at this last assembly, Ryan, of, of uh, your generation, Going to the microphone, men that I did not even know, I knew you, of course, but men who didn't go to even traditional reform seminaries, ex-charismatics and Baptists, men under 40. I was told by uh, a former chairman of uh, head of the MTW and one of our seminaries that nobody under 40 thought the way we did. But it was remarkable at this assembly, majority of the of the really good exegetical confessional speeches were men under 40. And I can't, I said, look, if these guys are preaching this in their churches, then we're in for just a great ride. Uh, it was, uh, it was a glorious assembly. The, the, the speech of uh, Charles Stover, uh, a recent, very recent covenant seminary grad stands out uh, yeah. in my mind and, and Stephen O'Neill as well. Just, these guys who are maybe even younger than I am. And it, it's so thrilling to see. And, and Dr. Robinson, I really think that that is, is a tribute to your ministry in the seminaries, uh, training up men like Bebo Elkin and, and, and Joseph Piper and, and Wayne Herring, training up these guys uh, to disciple others. And, and Morton Smith as well, but, but he's you know, not with us. Harry, Harry Reeder was a student, if I, if I recall. Right. <laughs> But I think that that first generation really laid a good foundation that we are now seeing uh, take root. That in, I, I wonder what, what are you, either of you two founding fathers would think, has the PCA become both more and less committed to the Westminster Standards at the same time? Yeah. Are, are there two tracks? Yes, there's two tracks. Are, they, are we being pulled in you know, the, the evangelical direction, the broad direction, as well as a uh, confession um, mission of the church direction, uh, that, that we, we just can't figure out what, uh, what kind of a denomination we want to be. Well, I think there's a big difference between grassroots right now, what seems to be happening, and what's happening at the top of, of some of our uh, committees in the denomination. Hmm. And the grass, there just seems to be, yeah, I mean, you guys coming into presbyteries now, not taking exceptions. And if they're being honest, um, then this is, this is uh, uh, by God's grace, a glorious thing that he could be uh, uh, granting uh, to us. And I tell people, I'm, you know, I tell our students, Reformation is one church at a time, one day at a time. What happens at the assembly is important, but not nearly as important as what happened in our presbyteries. 
And I think that's what I'm excited about is what's happening in our uh, in our presbyteries. And I've seen so many churches move confessionally. Yeah. I mean, think of Westminster Church in Atlanta, where now they have two thoroughly reformed expositors there preaching. And my good friend John White excited because they took down the picture of Christ in the um, uh, meeting hall. I mean, that's, but the, you know, side B, homosexuality help us on this other stuff that the National Partnership promoted. Suddenly churches in the middle waking up and said, this is not the denomination that, that we signed up for. And I think they have, I mean, I've seen a lot of people interested in Greenville Seminary that probably eight years ago would not have been interested in Greenville Seminary. And I just see that as more across the board of a, of a great change in our churches. And even then I tell it, and I agree with, I honor our fathers. Uh, Don Patterson was my pastor all through high school and much of my philosophy of pastoral ministry, I imbibed from him. But uh, I tell our students, I said, look, when I got out of seminary, there were maybe in the South, three self-consciously, I'm not talking about deep Florida South, but um, three self-consciously reformed church congregations in the South. And now every state's full of them. And, and, and we have our differences, but, you know, we wouldn't even be fighting these things uh, 40 years ago. Mm. Um, no, no, we're, we're wrestling now with how our church becomes more reformed, but that was not a conversation I got out of seminary. Yeah. And I, I, that's something else I think is very encouraging. Now, I, I think in, in some regards, each new generation has to rediscover just how great is the Westminster Confession of Faith. Mm. It is a remarkable document. When you look at it, you know, 25 pages or something like that, but it's truth. And truth has massive power to affect the world and to affect people. But every generation has to rediscover for itself this, this truth that is embedded, not just embedded, but is the essence of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's a wonderful thing when ruling elders as well as teaching elders grasp what they have in this treasure and then they take that understanding and put it to work in their local church situation and the decisions of the session and take it to the courts of the church as it relates to various issues as they come forward. And you've got truth then that is going to impact not just the way people think, but the way people live. As Calvin says, doctrine is not a thing of the mind, but of the heart. Amen. And as the truth of the Westminster Confession goes deeply into the hearts of people. And here it's so it's such a wonderful thing to to 
to meet an elder, and there are many of them. You know, I think R.C. Sproul has done a tremendous job, and his magazine continues to do a tremendous job. I just noticed the latest issue has the five points of Calvinism being discussed and put forward in a very practical way that that ruling elders and lay people can understand you don't have to have a, a theological degree to to understand the truths of the westminster confession so i think we should encourage ourselves and do everything we can to get the word out there i, I think podcasts are wonderful personally <laughs> I like things in print, just little things. You know, Jim Kennedy used to talk about maximizing your ministry. And if you spend a week preparing a sermon, then get it printed and di distributed. And somebody is going to pick that up and read it. And just write your own little exposition of the various chapters of the Westminster Confession of Faith in practical language and multiply your ministry. And as, as those who are appreciative of the standards continue to popularize it, in, not in terms of downgrading it, but in terms of communicating the, the great value that is there, the church is going to be changed from within out. And that's what we want to see. And you know, Dr. Robertson, that's exactly what we've seen in the last three assemblies. Um, I've always thought that all of this restructuring assembly was to cause a declension in ruling elder attendance. I think it was all weighted that way. And when uh, groups like Moore got started um, and we have aggressively recruited these ruling elders, that has been a major part, I believe, in the change of the trajectory. I, I inherited from Thornwell a love for ruling elders. And uh, I just, again, in addition to the young men that went to the microphones, it was ruling elders who were, as you were saying, Dr. Robertson, making intelligent biblical and confessional speeches at the assembly. And that's... Every year now, we've had a greater percentage. We were told when the restructuring happened that if this didn't work, that we wouldn't do it. Well, I didn't believe it then. I don't believe it now. Um, and we'll get some other attempt to get rid of ruling elders if we're not careful. But uh, it's, it's just fantastic, uh, as you've said, what God is doing for us in, in intelligent, spiritually-minded ruling elders. So, Dr. Robertson, you um, and to Dr. Piper's point there, you how you're talking about get the word out, spread the word. So, I have here a copy of. Uh, can you see that? Yeah. Your session to session. Yeah. And I, the reason I brought it out is because I thought I saw Dr. Piper's name in the editors, and and you are listed there, Dr. Piper. Did you have a Did you have a part in the session to session publications? Oh, that was a long time ago, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it was. He's got a new one now, though he's just started, that we need to get out to everybody. Yes, Elder to Elder. That's a, a great, uh, a, a great, he, he's a, what is it, a sub stack. You're, you're, 
boy, you're on the cutting edge there, Dr. Robertson. <laughs> I did what, notice that connection, elder to elder and session to session. I was delighted to see that. Yeah. But Dr. Piper, what was your role in session to session? Uh, that Dr. Dr. Robertson, you started that, right? Yes, he, he was just a supporter and an encourager, and I suspect he wrote some articles every now and then. And uh, you know, getting the word out was was very critical. But it was, right. it was very true that session to session was what it says. One session, the session of Wallace for Presbyterian Church, where I was the pastor communicating to all the sessions about the issues of the PCA. And now this, this new effort is elder to elder, since I, I don't have a session not being a pastor at this point, to try to do the same thing, to, to communicate not just to the preachers, but to the elders, ruling and teaching elders, the issues that are, are facing us. And now it looks like the issues are not just within the PCA, it's the, the larger body of, of church that is wrestling with all of these various issues that are here in the PCA as well. Well, on the topic of uh, issues, what are some of the key moments or turning points in the denomination for good or ill uh, that you think have shaped or altered or, or strengthened the PCA in her trajectory over the last 50 years? I, I remember one interesting General Assembly where uh, Morton Smith had been the stated clerk for from the beginning. You know, people don't realize what that he was a, a quiet man, but that quiet man was the first professor when Belhaven became coeducational, and he's the one that got that school going that is still going and training or getting men prepared for the gospel ministry. He was the first professor at Reformed Theological Seminary. And then he was the, when the PCA was formed, he, he had to decide whether he was going to teach at Reformed Seminary or become the stated clerk of the PCA as it was being formed. And because of his loyalty to the church above any institution, he resigned from his professorship at Home Theological Seminary to become the stated clerk. And he did a beautiful job in the sense that he, he set the pattern. What was the pattern? Well, one of the things that is in, I, I was looking not, not too long ago, that the stated clerk is not to make any pronouncements that have not that are not representative of a decision that has been made by the assembly itself. In other words, the stated clerk is not to go out and and make his opinion sound like the opinion of the PCA. In the Northern Presbyterian Church, there was a famous name, Eugene Carson Blake, and that particular man. He, he was like the dictator of a three million member denomination. And what he said, that was the opinion of the General Assembly of the three million member church of the Northern Presbyterian Church. 
And we did not want that kind of thing. And Morton Smith very humbly took that position. You never heard Morton Smith express his opinion on any issue as a stated clerk. He, I remember just one case where he felt strongly about some issue. He stepped down from the role as stated clerk and made his opinion known and waited until that issue was finished before he resumed his responsibility. But there was an instant in which something had been going on and the report was given, well, Morton Smith has decided to resign from the office of stated clerk. And it just didn't sound right. Mm -hmm. And so the question was raised on the floor of the General Assembly. Uh, Dr. Smith, is, is this your desire to resign from the stated clerk? And he, in, in meekness, said, well, as I remember, he said, well, not really. And the assembly, in an uproar, said, we're not accepting any resignation from Dr. Morton Smith, we will reinstate him, which is what the General Assembly did at that particular point. But that, that was a, a critical yeah, um, in, in many ways. For, let me, yes. Let me give some backstory on this. Uh, Russ Johnson, who was the president of Deposit Garrity Bank in Mississippi and an elder at uh, First Pres, at his own expense, for a number of years, anticipating that one day we would have a conservative denomination, sent Dr. Smith and Al Freund to every PCOS assembly so they would learn how the church should operate. Mm -hmm. Now, when, when uh, Freund stayed in the old church, then that pretty much left Dr. Smith, and that's why he... Uh, became the first clerk. But just one minor correction, Dr. Roberts, because you'd already left the seminary when this happened. Uh, he worked part-time as clerk in the early days right. uh, and taught still at Reform Seminary. And then basically, at least he thinks, in a move to push him out as he became increasingly uh, more practically reformed, uh, he was given an ultimatum. You either will stay here. You can no longer be part, uh, serve your church uh, as clerk. And that's then uh, when he uh, made that decision. I just updated his biography that I did for the Festrif. It'll be coming out in the Confessional Presbyterian, which is an anniversary issue. will be coming out uh, for, for the PCA. And then, uh, George, uh, I hate to say this, but what happened is, is that uh, for me, that this ties into Dr. Smith as well. The, the major trajectory was when the RPCS came in without the OPC. We basically, we were becoming increasingly old school Presbyterian and confessional. The RPCS was very new school um, Presbyterian. And uh, it changed very quickly because uh, the second in command in every one of the uh, committees uh, was now put on that committee uh, from the RPCS. I was chairman of the CE committee when this happened, and we immediately, you know, uh, no longer, people didn't want the same kind of 
assembly oversight of the committees that we had had. And so it was actually, at least according to Dr. Smith, it was the attempt of the uh, RPCS people to get rid of him as clerk. Um, and then the assembly overwhelmingly. But then because of that, the next year then, he said, I'll, I'll, he said, I'll do it one more year. And then he, he did resign voluntarily. Um, but, and talking about his fairness, I, I can remember even at the time, and I write about this, he had people that would have been his, his friends that thought he had betrayed them because he would not take sides in anything, any advice he ever gave as a clerk. And so he would actually alienate at times people that, uh, he would have agreed with. And then one other backstory, one of the reasons that that early assembly, that some men that should not have spoken when we did uh, that early in the life of the church, most of us only been ordained two or three years, was because our mentor would not say anything, rightly so. So when these issues were coming up in terms of parachurch missions or uh, charismatic things like that. Uh, in God's providence, it was his students who were thinking confessionally and biblically and then felt compelled to uh, to speak so at least the voice could be heard. And then because we were all sitting together, because we were friends, and this is the first time any of us seen each other in two or three years, then we were accused of block voting. Uh, at that little tiny assembly in, in Birmingham, which is not true at all. Every, every man thought for himself. But we also had been shaped by the man that was up there behind the desk. Um, uh, and, and so, yeah, all of that's part of it. He was just a remarkably humble man and faithful. And as he says himself, he, he never did anything out of furthering Morton Smith. Every decision he ever made from uh, when he went, went to Westminster Seminary and Dr. Van Til and others told him, if you really want to serve the Southern Church, you've got to go back to the Southern Seminary. You can't be, can't graduate up here. So he goes back to Columbia. He takes this call in, 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 the, in the Baltimore area and barely into it, Bell Haven starts calling him and he doesn't want to leave his newfound charge and takes three calls from Bell Haven. Uh, for him to say, well, I guess the Lord's leading in this. And he just never made a decision for Morton Smith. Well, we've uh, alluded to it a little bit. Um, the, the PCA has been somewhat held in balance or maybe tension between a centralized administrative uh, functional uh functionary denomination versus a grassroots polity. What is the reason uh, for that concern? Maybe Dr. Tipton, you can uh, speak to that as an expert in, in, in our in our current polity. And yeah. then uh, the, the two brothers can give some historic background to that. Wow, I wouldn't call myself an expert. Um, yeah, I guess, uh, you know, part of the reality um, is, uh, you know, we're a much larger denomination today than we were even, you know, 45 years ago, certainly 50 years ago. Uh, I was uh, just, I was, we're preaching through First uh, Kings in the evening, and one of the commentaries made an interesting point that, you know, talking about Solomon's rise to power over his father, that 
as organizations grow their uh, or kingdoms or churches or denominations, right? Their uh, their organizational needs change, and I think uh, that's a big part of what's happened. Uh, certainly, over the the whole lifespan of the PCA, I think uh, the the mention of the RPCES coming in earlier. Uh, also had a huge impact, not just in the sense of number of churches, uh, but also in a philosophy, uh, I can speak, a philosophy of organization. And um, I, I, I don't think I'm alone in saying this. I don't think it's a controversial statement. I think there were differences of opinions about organizational structure that probably were not worked at, well, not probably, that were not worked out the way they should have been at the time. And uh, there's been some interesting uh, interactions between the RPCS versus uh, PCA, uh, the the background, and then trying to fit those things together. Um, I, I also think, though, that sometimes um, we allow our uh, political uh, views to kind of bleed into what we do as a church, as a denomination, um, and especially over the last, you know, say 15 years or so, grassroots American political activism uh, has been uh, a, a major issue. Now, I know there's men here who are much older than I, and maybe that's something that's, you know, come and gone throughout the years in American politics, but certainly with tea parties and other things has been a, an issue in American political scenes. Um, and when you come to a denomination like the PCA and you start talking about grassroots Presbyterianism, I don't think you mean anything like grassroots uh, American political activism. Um, you know, the idea that I see enshrined in our BCO, enshrined in a lot of the historical documents uh, from which our polity is taken, is that you know the, 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 the root of Presbyterianism is a presbytery. Right. It's not it's not even sessions at that point. It is, a, it is a presbytery. And I think the pendulum swings between uh, denominational control, uh, whether that, you know, obviously Episcopalian or whatever, but even in even in Presbyterian denominations, as uh, Dr. Piper was alluding to uh, in the sense of uh, like even uh, uh, Palmer, right, that that idea of a denomination that's run by a stated clerk, let's say, or by that sort of organizational factors, to um, you know, down to almost congregationalism with the veneer of Presbyterianism over it. Um, and I don't want either of those. I want Presbyterianism, and that means that Presbyteries uh, have power uh, and, and are the primary, the root court, really, the root court of Presbyterianism. And I think that if that's the understanding, if that's what people mean by a grassroots Presbyterianism, then I'm, I'm okay with that. But it often seems to me that it's more kind of a, uh, like I say, kind of congregationalism plus versus uh, Presbyterianism. And that's a hard thing, right? Because what that means is, is that, you know, when you gather for, you know, three to five times a year, depending on your Presbytery, um, that, you know, you're going to take the vows that you made when you were ordained seriously to submit yourself to your brothers in the Lord, that that, that is going to be, especially if we're all teaching elders, right? That's going to be your root court. Those men are going to have responsibilities uh, to uh, to look into to you, your life, your character, your teaching. Um, they're going to shepherd you the way you're shepherding a congregation. 
and uh, you know, and again, just the kind of <laughs> uh, you know the realities of being modern or you know present day American Western Christians. Uh, we don't like we don't like people telling us what to do. We're looking into you know our our, our stuff, so to speak. And so I think all of us um, have kind of a natural tendency towards wanting to be very independent. Um, you know, we, we, we will submit ourselves to our brothers in the Lord, especially when they agree with us, um, but not so much when they don't. And I think that's where a lot of the, uh, you know, the, the troubles um, nowadays, again, I don't know the history or how, how we got here, but I, but I think there's a lot of that. Um, and a lot of it to me just seems to be kind of a reflection of, um, you know, what I see going on in American political, uh, um, you know, spheres, a lot of mistrust of, you know, quote unquote, the other side, um, and, and, and a lot of those types of things, which are, are just utterly detrimental to unity, um, and, uh, to, to being Presbyterian. Uh, I don't know. I kind of went off on a tangent there. Sorry. Um. Let me take a little different tack, at least in terms of 50 years ago, Steve. Yeah. Uh, the idea, and I've never liked the, the language grassroots. Uh, I think it could even then. But what was behind the way the assembly is structured, and in the book is still structured, although we've not functioned this way in a number of decades until this RIO change at this last assembly, um, was basically an application, Ryan, of Thornwellianism through Dr. Smith. So he designed this uh, system uh, that as we came into this, of uh, this balance between the Presbyteries and the Assembly. And, and particularly the committees of the Assembly would not begin to function like boards and agencies, but the whole idea of a committee meant then that they were going to be uh, held accountable by the General Assembly through the Presbyteries. So what was designed was what you guys, young guys, have seen is pretty much rubber stamp. Committee of Commissioners in the first 20 years, or maybe just 15, uh, started changing after the RPCS came in, so 10. But Committee of Commissioners actually reviewed everything. Uh, so Committee of Commissioners was made up on rotating, but every Presbytery would send either a teaching or a ruling elder, and they would rotate. And again, I appreciate our commitment to parity. Uh, and they would examine everything that the permanent committee did through its minutes, its programs. If the committee had been assigned a responsibility by the assembly, committee commissioners, you know, did you do it? How have you done it? If if a committee wanted to take initiative and, and suggest a program, they couldn't just go off and do it. They bring it to the committee commissioners who would debate it, and then it would go to the floor of the assembly. Mm. Now, that was what the PCA was, not because of any political environment, but because of trying to create Thornwellian uh, principles of these. Uh, every committee of the nomination uh, answered to the General Assembly through the elders who were there present. And then we lost that. I mean, even as I mentioned when I was, or maybe I didn't, I was chairman of the city committee for five years and I watched and I was in the midst of that when the RPCS came in. And every year there was at the top level um, more resistance to being accountable to the General Assembly. And so this would be the late 80s. 
I was, uh, I remember one time as chairman, I apologized to the assembly and said we didn't do that right the way you, uh, you know, wanted us to do it and forgive us. Well, the the head honcho said, you can't, you can't do that because they won't trust us. <laughs> and I said, well, I think if we're honest and vulnerable, they might trust us more. But that was the, the change that was taking place uh, even at, at that point. Now, in the, one of the things encouraging is what we did with MTW three years ago or three assemblies ago and what we did with RU for this assembly. Uh, that's remarkable. And that's the first time that any major committee in the denomination has had its hand slapped and told, no, we're not going to do it that way in probably decades. Yeah. And so oh, I'm yeah. encouraged by that as well um, to get that balance between presbyteries and, and the David Hall commented uh, some uh, yeah. months ago that uh, if, you know, the, the RAO change that we adopted this year in Memphis to require substantive uh, policy changes to be brought to the assembly for approval. He said that wouldn't have even had to have been voted on 40 years ago. Uh, so we're celebrating it now, but the, the fact that it was necessary is a statement on our, uh, how far we've come. Now that 1991 general assembly, uh, Dr. Robertson, David Hall spends a, a good bit of time meditating on your role in uh, in that assembly. He, sa he says, Dr. O. Palmer Robertson had been a forceful advocate for more of a grassroots against the permanent committee's accrual of power. Uh, and he talks about your role as the chairman of the administrative committee committee of commissioners. Um, he says, uh, the real issue for the assembly at this time was how the administrative committee should function and what its relationship toward the assembly and the permanent committee should be. Now, for some years now, the permanent committee or some of its members had resented the fact that the committee of commissioners could stop, halt, or reverse some of the permanent committee actions through the years. Uh, so uh, we see that was, again, a flashpoint uh, where, where Dr. Robertson, just as, as you did, uh, let's see, when was it, in Birmingham, you know, stood up and, and held the PCA accountable uh, to our Constitution. Uh, but uh, there has been this this ebb and, and flow of uh, of centralized versus uh, presbytery centered um, uh, yeah, policy. I, I, the, the root behind the what is going on is back to the origins of of Christianity, the Book of Acts, etc. It's a matter of whether decisions of the church are going to be made by the courts of the church or by an elite committee or elite committees that know more and better than the courts of the church. It goes back even to the Old Testament where the elders of the gate were the ones that made the decisions that affected the life of the community. And that is a situation in which elders, there may have been a prophet there, may have not been a prophet there, but <laughs> elders sat at the gate and discussed issues and reached a decision. And that then became the governing 
force of the community. Now, in the book of Acts, you have exactly the same thing. You have Paul the Apostle not ordaining an elder, not ordaining an administrator, not ordaining another apostle for every city. He ordains elders, plural, in every city. And those elders in every city, and you know, as the as the New Testament revelation progresses, you you get at the at the last phase where the apostolic age is going to end and which there are going to be no more apostles, you have in the letters to Timothy and Titus the description of the role of the elder. And the elder is the one who is given this responsibility of governing the community. But again, we, under the days of the apostles, you had an individual who could make decisions for the church, decisions about morals, decisions about the faith. But the whole movement was that is ending with the establishment of the eldership to govern the church. At the same time, you have the General Assembly in Acts chapter 15, a perfect pattern where there is an issue that affects the whole of the body of believers. Then elders, the apostles with the elders make that decision. And the model then is we don't have living, breathing apostles, but we have the writings of the apostles. And the elders then in the General Assembly should be taking the scriptures that are the scriptures of the apostles. And with those scriptures, the elders, and here it can be ruling and teaching elders. And from the very beginning, there must have been more ruling elders than teaching elders in the church in Ephesus, the elders that came down, there were very likely preachers that were among them, but it was more ruling elders than teaching elders that met together in assembly in, in Jerusalem and made the decision. James, who made the final statement, was not an apostle, he was apparently the older brother of Jesus. We don't have any indicator that he was an ordained preacher. He was very likely an elder. And James, the, the elder, the brother of Jesus, he made the speech that determined the course of, of Christianity at that point. So in terms, it's really not so much as, as I read the scriptures, not a, a struggle of power between the, and in our situation today, it's not a struggle of power between the session, the presbytery, and the general assembly. Each of them have their realm of responsibility. There are things that a session can decide that the general assembly cannot overrule, such as budget. The, the General Assembly cannot say to a session, this is your budget. It cannot, the Presbytery cannot say to the, to the session, this is your budget. 
they have powers and the they cannot say this is your pastor that there are certain rights and powers in each area as they relate to the various churches so the in some ways we speak of broader courts rather than higher courts they have broader and broader response responsibilities but our day the the, the tension is between the the those who are in positions that really put them in a position of an expert in this or that area. So long as the expert is, they do have expertise, but so long as they're willing to submit their expertise to the judgment of the court of the church that they are serving, then everything will be fine. But when, in the case of a presbytery, a committee of the presbytery really begins to dominate the presbytery and things and uh, some officer in the presbytery, the stated clerk or the moderator or some chairman of a committee begins to exercise authority that is greater than the body as a whole. And you've got a problem and you've got tension. But the, the ideal is the ideal that is, as far as I understand it, the biblical ideal that it is in the courts of the church, and that is the Thornwellian perspective. That that fourth volume of Thornwell has not ever been beaten in terms of explaining the ecclesiastical structure that is that is biblical. Hodge was much more on the side of of administrators. And that's that's from the northern side of Presbyterianism in America, whereas the southern side has been the Thornwellian position. And interestingly, I think, you know, you asked the question, why did the northern Presbyterian church go down the way of liberalism faster than the southern Presbyterian church? And I think part of the dimension was not just that the South is slow. That's not. <laughs> it's, it's because, number one, a stronger commitment to the standards, but number two, because of the emphasis on ruling elders in the courts of the church as those who would govern the direction of the, of the church. And if we could get back to that first general assembly, where we have more ruling elders than teaching elders. So I'm, I'm a teaching elder, and I don't have good sense at all. I would, I'm so happy when I've got six ruling elders to one teaching elder. That, that's a good proportion. Now, you know, they, I teach them some things, but in terms of the outworking of the church, we need, we need a majority of ruling elders to keep us in balance. Yes, as teaching elders, we have our role, but Lord, please continue to provide for us a majority of, of ruling elders. Amen. Dr. Pipe, anything to add to that? That's where I see the struggle. It's where the, the experts, and that we need them, and as as you say, we've gotten to a size that 
you need administrators, but as long as the administrators are willing to humble themselves, they accept the leadership and the decisions that come from some good, solid ruling elders, and whether it's talking about General Assembly or Presbytery or the session, that's, that's where health is going to be for the church. Um, yeah, I, I think kind of practically, um, I, I've been in, oh, I've been an ordained teaching elder for 13 years, been to 12 general assemblies and served on a committee of commissioners or overtures or whatever, I mean, every year. And um, I mean, I've seen the kind of rubber stamp committee of commissioners where, you know, don't ask any questions. We want to get out of here so we can all go to lunch or play golf or whatever else it is. And uh, you wonder what on earth are you doing here? Um, and then I've been on a handful where there were serious issues that came forward and, you know, there were a number of individuals who were very uh, interested in asking, you know, serious questions and, and digging in. And, um, you know, it's always struck me as odd that the committee of commissioners that actually wanted to do work, I mean, outside of Overture's committee, that's a slightly different animal, but you know, any committee commissioners that wants to actually look at something and dig in and ask serious questions is, is the oddity. Um, and, and I, and I think that, you know, again, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's any super sinister motive. Um, it is, I think one of you gentlemen mentioned this where, you know, you, you go to general assembly and it's the first time you've seen people in a year, you know, you went to seminary with and you're good friends with, and maybe you talk occasionally on the phone or whatever, or you see them on podcasts, but you know, you don't, you don't, you don't get to sit down and talk or have a meal or whatever. And so you want to maximize that kind of time. And it, it really, it lend, it has lended itself over the years to, you know, turning it in on the one hand to a convention, on the other hand, into, you know, they hand you your voting card and your rubber stamp. Um, and you know, the, again, I don't think it's any sinister motive per se on you know anybody's part to try to get those things working that way. It's just that's the the inertia has been moving in that direction, both from the administrators who really, um, you know, probably in one sense don't want a lot of interference in in what their committees are doing. Um, and again, I don't think that's a sinister motive either. I think it is. You know, I, I wouldn't want to be the chairman of a lot of these permanent committees where, you know, you go away for a year to do your work and you come back and you don't know if, you know, some uppity COC is going to take everything you did last year and throw it in the trash can. We don't really have, I don't think, a good um, middle ground between, um, you know, commissions that just you go run whatever you do, you do whatever you want to do. And the way that it often or sometimes works when, like with MTW or RUF, where the where the the General Assembly a year later comes back and says, "Hey, wait a minute," I just you know I don't I don't think we've we've worked out those issues uh, in our polity, and I, and I don't have a solution because I think any solution automatically, depending on who makes it, it it's going to be seen as either overly conservative or overly progressive or moving the denomination one way versus another. Um, but, you know, I, I had a conversation with a chairman of a permanent committee a year or so ago, and as we were talking about it, I, I don't envy his position at all. Um, and, and just the, 
the, the difficulty that is there trying to trying to do what the pres the denominations ask you to do um, and and not knowing not really having the power or the authority to do 90% of the stuff that they actually do and then hoping no one notices or you know pulls the rug out from under them at the next general assembly i do think that it has a long way to go absolutely uh, but I think even even in the last five to six years, I think there's been some really good, solid moves and strides in the PCA. Uh, it's a it it's not it's not what I think you know the five of us if we were able to wave a magic wand. It's it's not that yet, but I think it's moving in a good direction. Uh, and and again, a lot of it has to do with uh, I know uh, Ryan's already made references to this, but. You know, Dr. Robertson, you know, some of the speeches, some of the things that you've done the last couple of years have been very helpful. And I, I think, you know, as a, as a younger man, although I don't know that I'm that much anymore, um, but I like to think of myself as a younger man. Um, you know, some of the older statesmen in our, in our denomination uh, continuing to, sh to, to go to the assembly and to speak uh, to those issues um, and to, you know, remind us, um, you know what what genuine presbyterianism what 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 genuine eldership looks like i think is so so vital and so important so i really really appreciate this, the things you guys have done and and continue to do and i, I just pray that god will continue to use you in our denomination so mm. steve so so my some thoughts on what you said i i think i think some of this with these permanent uh committees agencies boards it's it, some of it's philosophical but some of it is just the growing pains of being i mean some of these things are multi-million dollar operations uh if you think of the the college the seminary ruf um mtw and so i can imagine working for them working within them it'd be difficult to have to wait a year to like you like you said to have have stuff undone um, so, so maybe some of it is we, we just got to learn through it. I do think there is some philosophical stuff going on where it's like, well, trust your committee's trust. But I mean, I, I appreciate how Dr. Robertson explains and, and goes through uh, the point of the committee of commissioners and, and, and our, our rights. And we shouldn't be, uh, we, we shouldn't feel bad for our jobs on those committee of commissioners at general assembly, like we're the fly in the ointment because we have some questions about certain things. And, uh, but, but I wonder how much of it is just growing pains about the size that we've gotten. I've heard de debates online about, should we be a de delegated assembly or something because it's just so big and unmanageable. And, and yet this last GA, we got out early and we, it was run well. And so, um, you know, I, th I think these these some of these conversations are just based on on our size. Not that we're a huge denomination in this country, but we're a huge huge one in the con uh, conservative Presbyterian world, Reformed world at least. And so, uh, yeah. But you know, George, it's not just Southerners who are slow. Presbyterians are slow. <laughs> I'm not sure it's harmful to have to wait a year. Um, that's part of who we are. Uh, and I'll just give you two examples. Uh, I don't know what it's like in y'all's press theory, you and Ryan are, but uh, many of us can Actually, I'm in Dr. Robertson's presbytery, so you can you can ask him how it is uh, okay. in, in your private. Many of 
our confessional churches here have withdrawn support from RUF ministries because they're so a woke, b unconfessional, and how they're behaving at the uh, at the presbytery. Uh, this is, uh, and I wish people were still here because uh, we watched this change take place. So RUF was also thrown well in, and you couldn't put an RUF work in any campus you didn't have a well-established PCA church the campus minister was a member of that church um, and the summer training was powerful and then you know summer training begins to get more sonship stuff and things like that and and pretty soon uh, you know they pushed Bebo out of teaching at summer training um, and it's just uh, there is a uh, there is a th this confessional declension is not just in our presbyteries or mtw i'm glad that you know doctor somebody mentioned dr robertson mentioned about how we were you know just planting churches as i can see it the great majority of what we're doing now in fact there was a a downplay on sending ordained men to the field in which we have uh, soccer coaches and artists and all of these things uh, going on on the on the mission field, this stuff didn't happen overnight. Didn't happen because they're, they're big um, multi-million dollar things. It happened because it was a change of philosophy and the assembly uh, was completely unaware of that in terms of the presbyters. So I don't mind having to wait a year to do something. Yeah. Well, but I think, you know, that that's part of the you know, the, the reality that these things didn't happen overnight. And, but I also think as I, you know, talk to a lot of my, you know, conservative friends, uh, again, for whatever use that, that, that label is, but, you know, confessional guys like us, um, that it, it it's going to take probably just as long to get the ship, you know, theoretically oh, yeah. back in the direction that you want it to. And, well, and I think and that's, that's why I said it's one church at a time, one day at a time. I'm not nearly as concerned about trying to change things at the top as we change things, as Dr. Robertson said, in the press trade level. The top will eventually change. Yeah. Well, I think, it, you know, it, it has been, uh, you know, it, it, there's small changes. And, you know, that's obviously right. we shouldn't uh, shouldn't despise a day of small things. No. But, you know, the, the last four or five years have been uh, really good. And, and it. I think the hard part now is just maintaining momentum. Um, you know, for instance, there's what two overtures on the PCAGA website. I think this time last year there were 743 overtures or something. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> if the perception is by you know let's say May, well, there's no real major issues coming up this year then the problem is going to be getting the same amount of people interested to go to Richmond. Uh, to to do the mundane work, and um, well, yeah, but, but but I think even I also would love for us to to generate this what we're talking about, right? I mean, I would love for us to generate this idea in the PCA that that committees of commissioners are actually real serious important work. I mean, they are, um, and and to 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 have people really excited. I, I recognize that Ridge Haven is probably not the most exciting. See, I've been on Ridge Haven, 
It's not the most exciting COC in the world, um, but they're all important. And, you know, you really are doing an important work for the assembly. I mean, given the fact that the assembly can not change anything, it has to start at the COC. And so if there are any concerns or issues and, you know, to be willing to ask questions, maybe even hard questions and, uh, and and those are the those are the types of things that I think we just need to continue yeah. to do. That's gonna and, and each each time that happens, the 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 ship sort of steers back into the confessional waters, if you wanna stretch the metaphors as far as we possibly can. Well, I mean even thinking that and back to what Dr. Robertson said about the you know, the book of Acts and the first general assembly there, uh with with Jane. I mean, there, there's a weightiness to it, and I think we take it um, just as like the business, you know, and it's like, no, man, there, there's a weightiness even to serving on, like you said, Ridgehaven and, uh, which we're a supporter of, but, uh, you know what I'm saying? It's like, man, you're, you're going to do the work of the, you, your vote is in the church of Jesus Christ, at least in our little corner of, of the world called the PCA. And so I, I, I appreciate, uh, what you just said, I, as we're talking about their trajectory and, and particularly, uh, Dr. Piper said about the younger uh, pastors that are on the confessional side and um, some of that. I was reminded of an article written in 2015 called The State of the PCA. Here were some, some things he wrote about the progressive. He said, the progressive side of things would represent a majority of the younger pastors and churches that are growing. And then later he says, uh, and most go, votes go their way at General Assembly. And so that was 2015. Yeah. Now, you know, Stephen, you I remember that. that. Yeah. And you mentioned a few, the last four, three or four general assemblies. Um, I mean, which way the votes went. And Dr. Piper mentioned the younger guys. I mean, the energy, uh, Brad Isbell often says the energy is, is on the con confessional side of things with, with the, the younger guys. I think. Honestly, I think Greenville Seminary has helped that. And I think they've, with what they're doing there, has helped uh, the, the other seminaries um, to sort of promote those things. And I, I think that's a good thing. Um, but I'm sure. Yeah, George, that's right. Uh, four assemblies ago, we were losing votes 60 to 40. Three assemblies ago, we started winning votes 60% to 40%. Till this last assembly, it was even a larger discrepancy than that. So, I mean, yeah, what he, what he, that's what they believed. Uh, and I think maybe that's why some of the progressives actually have left now, because they really thought that uh, they had the heartbeat of the church. And I think by God's grace, they don't. And yeah, so, you know, I tell, I just try to keep these guys from bailing out and going to absurd places um, that um, and no names mentioned, or I can get in trouble for that. I've been told not to do that. So anyway, just absurd places. Uh, man, we got to stay in here. This is great. I think well, we're great even if it doesn't go well. Move into Sorry. the realm. You're right. If it doesn't go well, we still stay in. You're right. We're not. I think we can move into the realm of of prayer and. Seeking the encouragement of one another in the in our various gifts and ministries, and um, see the PCA for what it is as 
a not just another denomination, but if it is biblical in its commitment and biblical in its structure, it's going to have an impact far beyond its size in this world. And we need to encourage the church to be what the church is. Otherwise, it's going to drift the same way of the PCUS. You know, the when the PCUS was formed, it was formed because the assembly of 1861 said, you have got to be loyal to the federal government. You don't get to choose which government you're loyal to. And to be a good member in this church, you must be loyal to the federal government. And the leaders, Charles Hodge spoke strongly against it, did his protest against it, but it was entering into a political realm which the church needed not to be involved in. And the PCUS was formed by saying, no, that's not what the church is supposed to be. And our commitment from, from that early day has been to the scriptures and to the faith. But now, then a hundred years later, the PCUS is, is telling us we should tell the federal government that they should not have anti-ballistic missiles. <laughs> so they should be very careful about developing anti-ballistic missiles, even in the middle of the Cold War when Khrushchev was saying, we're, we're going to bury you. Well, I'm not sure that that's a terrible thing to see that church that was formed because they were opposed to political involvements by the church beyond what scripture would require to a hundred years later being the leaders in getting involved into political affairs which have nothing had nothing to do with what the church's mission is but the pca has made it 50 years are we going to make it 50 more years let's pray that we can hold to the standards which are scripture and the standards, and we can do that only by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, renewing our, our souls daily and our commitment against what the world all around us is standing for. So let us pray that the Lord will preserve us, not just let us be as we are, but let us even make progress in our sanctification, which is the most important thing that we can accomplish. Amen. Amen. Dr. Piper, Dr. Robertson, what are some of the things that you would like to say to the next generation to encourage us in that vein of staying faithful over the next 50 years? Guard the heart, I think, is the, is the number one thing. Let's just piggyback on what he just said. We every one of us must guard our own hearts seek to uh, walk in godliness use carefully the means of grace stay humble and 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 faithful stewards 
to what God has called us to do. Um, the more that God blesses us, the more Satan is going to uh, attack us and not, not just as a group, but individually. And just must maintain very short accounts and cultivate godliness every day of our lives. Mm -hmm. Dr. Robertson, would you pray for us as we close? Sure. Thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for creating your church. Thank you for the great privilege that we have of being a part of the bride of Christ, to have such an honored position that will last for all eternity. Thank you for those that have different opinions from us on minor issues compared to the greater issues. Lord, increase our love for one another, our ability to serve one another, and work a spirit of humility in all of our hearts. Give us the grace that we need day by day to proclaim your gospel to the ends of the world, whatever it may cost us, and give mm. us the grace to enjoy every blessing that you give us, including times of fellowship such as this. Mm. The glory of our Lord Jesus, who has given us all these gifts and paid the price for our eternal salvation. To all, all glory be to our Savior Jesus. Amen. 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 Thank you, right, thank you for hosting us. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was it was an honor uh, to be part of this. Thank you all. Thank yes. you. God bless everybody. I, I want, you know, Ryan, I always ask why you ask me to be on. Now I know why, because uh, Dr. Piper needed an RPCES guy. Uh, to, <laughs> to, uh, to beat was, up. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. He assured me when he told us about you that you, you were uh, not what I was concerned about. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. No, no. I, I've only been here uh, five years, but this is a wonderful church. And we, uh, see, we were ahead of, of y'all because we left the PCUS, Meadowview did in, in the sixties. And so we couldn't wait for the PCA to, uh, to leave the, the PCUS, but, um, yeah. <laughs> great for you. <laughs> All right. Thank you all very much. Okay. Good to see you, Steve. Good to see you as always. Bye, everybody. Bye -bye. See you guys. Yep. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you. Thanks for joining the conversation on this special celebration episode and collaboration between First Presbyterian Church, Jude 3, and the Westminster Standard Podcast as we mark the 50th anniversary of the Presbyterian Church in America. Now, please remember to listen to the end of the episode in which we will present the premiere of a new hymn by Pastor Zachary Groff, which he has written in commemoration of God's goodness to the PCA on this, her 50th anniversary. And do come back next week as we hear from Ike Reeder and Derek Bright about the wonderful works of God taking place in Bibb Prison through the ministry of Birmingham Theological Seminary and Warrior Presbytery. These men will report on God's faithfulness to His Word, that the ordinary means of grace in the gospel do indeed transform lives and communities. I'll talk to you then. At the dawning of creation, by the power of God's word, light shone forth, cutting through the darkness, when God's mighty voice was heard. 
by our sin the darkness took us and we fell from our high place but our savior did not abandon us christ has saved us by his grace we are called into to the scriptures owned, true to the faith reformed and holy, obeying the great commission. He will call us home to glory, the Spirit's jewels in our King's crown. Glorified we will stand and praise Him. Glory to the risen Lamb.